You might remember the Edgars, Don and Patricia, who founded the Australian Children's Television Foundation. Well, now, aged 81 and 80, Don and Patricia have moved on from kids and have written a book about growing old called Peak, Reinventing Middle Age. And I guess it's really about them in a way. But it's also about the fact that we're all living much longer. And that means our thinking about what is middle age and how we approach it needs to be rethought. As you'd expect from these two pioneers, it's a great book, and I spoke to them about it this week for The Spotlight. I started by asking what they mean by redefining middle age. We're redefining the the whole range of middle age, and middle age has been talked about as being sort of 40, 50, but now that we are living so much longer, it doesn't make sense to be talking about middle age at 40 or to be talking about old age at 55, as people still do. So we are defining middle age as 50 275, because most people are not really old in the sense that we understand age, and that means frailty and decline until late 70s and 80s. I think I'm an example of uh, what you're talking about. I'm 65 and I've just started a new business. Well, exactly. You've reinvented. Definitely not retirement. We're talking really about 7 million people as well, which is a huge proportion of the Australian population. So you can't write that large group off. And we argue in the book that they should be treated as a resource, not as a burden or even as a coming burden because they are well-educated, they're healthy, they're active, they want to be engaged. And uh, we, we just have to shift the paradigm about work and training so that uh, we we make use of them in a much more sensible way. I mean, in a way, you're responding to the fact that 25 years has been added to life expectancy in the past 100 years. I mean, that is a fundamental change to human existence, isn't it? Well, it is. And yet the mindset that somehow you retire... Well, it brought the retirement age down. We thought of retirement as 60 for women, 65 for men. But then in our days of affluence, they were talking about retiring at 55 or even younger. And it's it's completely out of step with the lifespan and the needs of the lifespan because we've got to look after ourselves and we've got to plan for that future And when I have 30 years or more where we've got to think about what we're doing and the trip overseas isn't going to fill that or the short bucket list of I want to do this when I stop full-time work, you've really got to think about replanning and reinventing your life for these years. So the, the economists really, you've got it wrong. I mean... The paradigm has shifted because of that demographic change. We've got that that group, huge group in the middle who want to work, who need to work because many of them do not have an adequate income and don't have adequate superannuation. Uh, many of them uh, make up the long-term unemployed. This middle-aged group, 50 to 75, average about 65 weeks if they lose a job, and yet you've got a lot of discrimination against that middle-aged group in the workplace in spite of the fact 
that uh, one or two companies, say like uh, Bunnings or one or two of the banks, recognise their value and are keeping them on in a much more adaptable way. So that's the way we have to shift. You talk about and the need for a radical and creative rethink of the way we structure a 100-year life. What do you think are the main elements of that? I mean, you've broken it into chapters, but take me through what you think are the, the sort of the dot points. It's work. with much, much more flexible work. It's education, which means lifelong, lifelong learning, because you don't just qualify at the beginning of your life for a job that's going to take you through life. You've got to keep adapting and rebuilding and relearning. And it's health because we need to get away from this notion that you you wait till something goes wrong, then you treat it. I mean, we've got to be more proactive about this fitness, about understanding the need for exercise, nutrition, for a relationship with our doctors where we're not going there so much just to get a script and a pill. It's about how we actively plan our lives to stay fit. And and particularly in terms of education, we've got to rethink the whole university education and training system. At the moment, the notion that you go to school, then you go to university, get a degree, and that's preparation for a job, is just being made a laughing stock by the changes in technology and automation the fact that uh, everybody is, is going to have to re-educate, relearn throughout their life. Some of the big companies in the United States, like AT&T, have also woken up to the fact they can't afford to lose these experienced workers. So they're putting up to $30,000 a year into these middle-aged workers to give them short-term courses in association with universities like the University of Georgia to gain new skills. You don't just sort of write them off and wipe off all their experience in the hope that young people coming through might have better technology skills, better computer skills. They're, they're realising they're, you've got to retain the skills, experience, the maturity of those workers, but they do need often retraining extra skills and they're working with universities to do that. Now here we have nothing like that. We have universities that sort of present themselves as though you get a degree, you get a job. The evidence doesn't support that. We don't have universities flexibly enough, uh, flexible enough for mature age entry or in cooperation with businesses who can define the skills and the universities construct courses, short-term courses, tailor-made to suit those skills. It's a whole new paradigm shift in learning. In fact, you suggested that the Department of Education should be renamed the Department of Lifelong Learning. What would that mean if it wasn't simply a cosmetic change? It would mean having to fund universities in a different way, fund even schools in a different way, and try and get more intergenerational exchange both within schools and within universities. I mean, universities have traditionally resisted, and, you know, we're both academics, we've been academics most of our life, but they've resisted the idea that you have to respond to the skill needs of a changing society. Uh, and they posit this idea that you, you get a qualification and you move in. I think they should be funded uh, to develop these new short tailor-made courses 
in response to economy, the changing economy, and in conjunction with businesses and industries that are growing and developing and, and are saying, we need people with this sort of approach, these sorts of skills. Even, I mean, many businesses are saying it's not, not just a short course in technological skills or something like that. They want people who can think, who can problem solve, who are adaptable, and uh, that needs to be emphasised through social policy to do with education and learning. And use many of these middle-aged, experienced people who are currently in work as mentors and tutors for younger people as well who are coming through now. One of the problems, it seems to me, is that any attempt to increase the retirement age is, is met with a lot of resistance politically. I mean, anyone who does what I think you would suggest, which is to say increase the retirement age by 10 years or something, would be immediately voted out of office. It's more to do with eligibility for the pension, isn't it? I mean... Well, that is, that's right. We should, we should be saying retirement is an outmoded word. People are going to live a longer life, so they need to work flexibly in and out of the workforce. I mean, women drop out of the workforce when they have a child, for example. Later on, their kids are at university, they, they can move back in, but then they've also got aged care issues. Now, it should be possible to adapt the workplace so they can take time off, take a, you know, a three-day week, a four-day week, uh, even the, the word flexibility has sort of become a dirty word and we're saying in the book perhaps something like adaptability or um, you know, shifting in and out uh, is better instead of the notion that flexibility exploits the workers. You can bring in measures that stop that exploitation and still allow adaptability according to this longer stage of life. I think that it's really important to get some sort of total shift in the thinking, the political thinking, because they see old age as a problem. It's a problem to be solved, which means it's an economic burden, health's a burden, the pension's a burden, etc. But they've got to look at the fact that this group is unlike any other group that's ever existed before. It is the most active, productive, healthiest and innovative group because people are getting on with their lives and they are sort of adapting and they are creating new businesses and they're very active, volunteering, looking after grandchildren doing a whole range of things that socially are very, very valuable. So the whole way in which this group is addressed, the language needs to shift. So we're talking in positive terms about the value and the resource of this group instead of this notion of burden, drain, problem. And, the, and part of that is constant sort of referral to the so-called dependency ratio. I mean, it's an arbitrary notion anyway. And if you have um, fewer children or more children being born, that's going to shift the dependency ratio. If you... Deloitte Access, for example, in 2013 estimated that if you... Uh, if employers encouraged retention of those over 65, which is what those people want, that would add something like $55 billion, 2% to Australia's GDP. 
And the blockage, so-called, this growing dependency, could very easily be overcome by having systems in place to retain and retrain, utilise the resources and skills of this older group because they do want to uh, stay in employment. So the whole language, that the paradigm is, is wrong. It's a negative paradigm about ageing. Instead of looking at it and saying, well, we've got this terrific resource, uh, we can build on it, we need to adjust the education system, change the way the workplace operates, uh, and we would not have the so-called burden of an ageing society. I've just interviewed a bloke who's written a report on millennials and the impact of um, the millennial generation on society and, and in, in particular on investing and so on. You know, and, and the paradigm is that you know, millennials are taking over the world with their smartphones and so on. And I kind of felt like saying, you know, wait a minute, people of my age, pretty robust and you know, active as well. It's not just millennials. Exactly. And this notion too that's being built up that somehow... There is this intergenerational warfare, you know, that the older group are really the ones who are stopping young ones getting work, who stopping them getting housing, who had it easy in their youth. You know, when you examine those assumptions, none of them really hold up. But what is happening, and it's not talked about enough is that this group is doing a great deal to support the millennials um, and certainly through living at home longer, supporting their education, helping them both with childcare or getting into housing and so on. We don't hear a lot about that. But there are studies which are showing there is not this sort of level of resentment either by the young to the old or the old to the young. It's just a, a fringe thing that is being beaten up. And the media are responsible largely for that, but the, many of the politicians have fallen into the same trap. Long ago, the European Union and the ILO recognised what's called the lump of labour fallacy, which you know, suggests that an old person should drop off the end of the workplace so that that provides a job for the young one. Well, of course, they don't because they don't have the same skills. And uh, instead, we need a system which encourages mentoring and interaction, retaining the skills we've got and bringing the other young ones through. So the millennials actually are going to face exactly the same sort of problem that this, this middle-aged peak group we're talking about is facing now because uh, automation job change, uh, restructuring, the need for re-education is probably going to be equally important for them as they move through into the middle years themselves. So really, I think it is a real paradigm shift. It's been a paradigm shift in terms of family relationships. That's worked through, sort of run through into the workplace to some extent with parental leave and childcare and that sort of thing, nowhere near enough. Now we're facing a, an even bigger shift because of technology that we need policymakers to begin thinking about and planning for. One of the points of this report on the millennials that I referred to made is that um, the millennial tend to be more interested in doing rather than having. That is to say they're, they're interested in experiences rather than material possessions. And my son, who's a journalist, 
a millennial journalist, as it happens, wrote this thing up and in the process interviewed some people who run a, uh, a skydiving operation where, where all their customers are millennials right. who are jumping out of planes and um, paying 400 bucks a pop. And the tenor of it was that the millennials have been liberated from because they can't buy a house. So although uh, you know a lot of the stuff about that is negative, Actually, in one way, another way of looking at it is that the millennials, by not having to buy a house, have been liberated and are able to pursue experiences. I thought that was an interesting thought point. Yeah. I saw that report with the big picture. We've got grandchildren who are millennials. And, I mean, the thing about them, they do have a very active and interested lifestyle. They, you know, they're out and about. They're doing all sorts of things. But at the same time they're being told, they should be able to have the same sort of access to housing, say, at a very young age, as did their grandparents. Now, it's absurd because... At that age, when we we look back on what we were no, doing, we well, did nothing it. else. <laughs> you, you worked, you looked after the house, and you saved every single penny. You didn't go down Brunswick Street and have a cocktail. <laughs> it's it's a totally different expectation that they want that freedom, and they're being told that at the same time. They should be able to have all the other things that the previous generations had. And it didn't work that way. And the thing is, they're going to live so much longer anyway that they will get to this stage, but they will get to it later than we did, much later. Part of what you've been doing is, is you, you did a fair bit of work on the superannuation system as well. What, what were your conclusions about what, how that is going and what needs to change there? Well, it's it's totally inadequate, isn't it? I mean, the majority of people have nothing like sufficient superannuation. So um, setting limits on contributions is probably counterproductive. The accessing superannuation and the transferability of superannuation from one job to another needs to be looked at as well. People working in the so-called gig economy, and it won't just be young people doing that, it'll be this old group as well, they're going to have to be able to transfer their superannuation entitlements from one job to another, and employers really need to, um, you know, even with uh, the exploitation that happens at the moment with um, the superannuation guarantee, you have to work a certain number of hours before the employer pays that in, that needs to be looked at. Now, they're fairly simple practical things that could be done Um, but I think the main issue really is making it feasible possible for this middle-aged group as they get older to remain in the workforce earning money having a sense of purpose but not in the standard old-fashioned full-time job versus part-time job it's got to be an adaptable in our different stage type arrangement so we've got there's a big cultural sort of message that needs to get out there the the unions have got to come away from the notion that every part-time job is exploitative governments have got to sort of stop 
positing these problems as though they're a problem. There are huge opportunities. They would they could boost the economy if they allowed greater adaptability for this middle-aged group to be employed in a different sort of fashion. I mean, the, the figures on superannuation, the average super balance was 193000 for men and 105000 for women. But that was in 2011. And it's not all that much better now. You could... 26% of adult men and 37% of women who have no superannuation at all. So you can't rely just on superannuation. You've got to look at income, which people need, and enough flexibility to allow them to provide that income. The problem you're identifying is the fact that uh, we're still kind of stuck in the paradigm of everyone works full-time until a certain age, you, you know, 60 or 65. And then you drop out. And then you drop out, stop doing everything entirely and go on the pension or if you've got enough, if you've got a bit of super, you go on that. And uh, if you're lucky, you go on a, a world cruise for a little while. Well, that's right. I mean, people, 12% of those over the age of 50 are already saying they will never be able to afford to retire. And you've got 64% of retirees wishing that they'd been able to work full-time for longer um, and of all those unemployed Australians, you've got 2 million over 50 who are unemployed who are saying they would love to be able to work, um, yet one in four of them who've applied for jobs at a, a later age, over 50, have uh, been discriminated against. You know, the, the HR managers, I think, have a lot to answer for uh, because they look at a CV and if they can work out that somebody's over 50, they'll just throw it in the waste bin. One of the best things about your book is the uh, the stories of the individuals at the end. Yes. I think there's, yes. there's about uh, 10 or 11 stories. And Patricia, I, I think my favourite was Maria Frendo, who I, I think you met early on <laughs> when you were running the uh, Children's Television Foundation. Yes. And you were having lunch at her restaurant. Tell us about Maria. She is an absolutely remarkable woman. She met this guy uh, when she was 15, actually, a boxer. Uh, she became pregnant. She got married. And uh, that didn't work out too well. I mean, he's a fairly aggressive sort of guy. She got out of that. She had a young child. Her parents didn't even know she was pregnant till she was due to have the baby because she couldn't talk about it. It was... Uh, uh, a Catholic upbringing and a family where such things weren't discussed and she knew she was in trouble and didn't know what to do. But she met this other guy who was older who didn't mind the fact that she had a child and she moved in with him. And she ran uh, a gym, a centre for about 10 years, developed all sorts of skills She's got an amazing, outgoing personality. She attracts people. And she went on to set up Dante's, uh, the restaurant in Gertrude Street, which was a real hub for um, arts activities and all sorts of people came to that restaurant. I was one of them. But then she took on a pub... She, she was having various marital problems, but she still did all this. She brought up two children who are great kids. She's very family-oriented. 
But then she decided, okay, I've had enough of that. I'll become a marriage celebrant. Uh, she did that and then thought, well, I'd like to take up aged care too. So she qualified, did the three-month course, um, and she's with an agency and she goes and visits people. She doesn't clean their houses. She she talks to them. She takes them shopping. She makes sure they've got things on the wall. She takes an interest in them. Uh, she found another guy, so she's got now a third but steady partnership and one that's working extremely well. She's very entrepreneurial. Now, she came out to this with virtually, well, some high school education, and that was it. The rest has been self-taught. She's adapted. She has dealt with crises. She's dealt with people. She's, she is utterly astonishing, and she is such good company. We we still see her quite regularly and really enjoy seeing her. Now, she is a standout. She's in her 60s now, but she will go on to the next 20 years or more and she will keep adapting and reinventing. So it's inspirational to see what someone like that does with their life. You get the feeling that she'll have another career before she's finished. I'm sure she will. Yeah, she was great, but all the stories are terrific, so um, uh, really well done on the on the book. Patricia and Don, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thanks very much. Thanks Thank you. very much, Ella. That was Patricia and Don Edgar, authors of Peak Reinventing Middle Age. 